Hey folks, I've got a doozy of a story for you today, and if you listened to last week's show, you'll know it's about my friend Molly of the Final Girl Friday podcast. I've got Molly on the show again after the story to take a deeper dive, but first, grab your headphones, turn out the lights, find a safe hiding place, and fall in to haunting season. Molly had a heart for the night crowd at the coffee shop. Daytime patrons were business people, moms with strollers, and young daydreaming writers, but none of them would be caught dead drinking coffee after 5 p.m. As an employee, it was mandatory for Molly to work a variety of shifts, but the ones that she most anticipated were the weekends when she got to close. Dusk brought forth the truly bizarre, the gamers, the goths, the witches, and the punks, all going to load up before a long night of debauchery. Mike's Mud House was the only coffee shop in their small Nebraska town that stayed open after seven, and as far as Molly was concerned, she'd stay open as long as her people needed. At 6.30, Mike the owner packed up for a long day of who knows what in the back of the office. Molly, I still don't know how you sell so much coffee after dark, but I know better than to ask too many questions. Just keep her clean and be safe. Shop's all yours, he said with a wink and a finger gun. Ship's safe with me, Captain. Molly shot finger guns right back. Happy wife, happy life, she thought. Is there a rhyme for bosses? Molly cleaned up the shop and turned it over for the night crowd, which involved locking the front door for an hour, pulling the shades, and mopping to the tune of 80s hits from the movies. A mega fan of horror, Molly liked to find the bizarre dances that Survivor girls performed in their bedrooms, learn them, and post video reenactments online. This was her opportunity to practice the dance of the week. The dances were never complicated. In fact, for the most part, they were embarrassingly bad, which made it all the more fun. The more obscure the movie, the more ridiculous the dance. With the floor clean, the radio tuned, and the doors open, the place started to fill up with the regulars. Mookie Madhouse with his bootleg B-grade horror DVDs, Val with her gamer laptop and headset, Luca with his D&D companions Megs, Trent, and Poe, and a handful of teens, too old to be home on a Friday, but too young to get into the bars. The place was bopping tonight, and there was only one more thing to do. Prep her special brew. Molly had her own beans that Mike didn't know about. Molly's Midnight Mania, an under-the-table caffeine addict's dream, guaranteed to blast you straight through midnight into the rising sun. It was coffee because Molly said it was coffee, but it was also not illegal because the U.S. government didn't know about it. At least, that's what she told Seth. Seth was five feet a man and a foot and a half a neon green mohawk. He and his boyfriend Trev were covered in black fabric and functionless zippers. The poster boys of the pop-punk shop in the mall, Small Town Oddities. To the brew, sweet Molly, Seth ordered the moment after crossing the threshold of the front door. Trev and I have a big night tonight. Approaching the counter, Trev pushed aside his limp black shoulder-length hair, a comical antithesis to his boyfriend, and spoke in a monotone drone of excitement. Kids punch moms at the tiger pit. That's 44 bucks, Seth. Molly waited as he pulled out his wallet. That's going to be a great show. My buddy Will does the lights over at the tiger pit, and they just installed some really cool shit. Seth slapped down his cash. We'll call it 50, Maul, even though you're charging a criminally high rate for bean juice. 
I appreciate the tip, buddy, but you can leave your sarcasm at the door. These beans ain't your grandma's beans, and they aren't easy to come by. Give me a sec. Maul kept her beans in the back of the freezer inside the vent, not just to hide them from the rest of the Mudhouse staff, but to make sure that they stayed beans, or stayed whatever they were. See, one night in December, just before Christmas, Molly had been staying at a cabin in the mountains with a few friends. Everyone was asleep except for Molly, the night owl, when a bright light lit up the sky, almost like a lightning flash, but deep orange, and it left an unnaturally orange glow out in the woods at the base of the trees. One would think, after watching endless horror films, that she would know better, but Molly did what all curious humans would do, shimmied into some snow pants, plopped into some oversized boots, and went to investigate. What she found was a smoking silo, pulsating with the dimming glow of amber coffee beans, buried in the frozen ground, enough for a decade of late nights. And so, she started experimenting. It was April now. Molly was running short on supplies. She had enough stashed in the vent for a few more weekend shifts, but would need to venture back to the silo soon to replenish. Molly grabbed the sack from the vent, which felt somehow a little less frozen than before, and got to brewing, shoveling a half cup into a personal grinder that she brought from home. She was very careful not to get caught, and prepared to push the button to grind. There was something in the structure of the beans. Something different that no matter which grinder she used, always let out a terrible, triggering sound. A sound so exactly reminiscent it transported her back to childhood. Molly pushed the button to grind. The screeching started, and like Pavlov's bell, it pulled her back to her childhood bed. A horrible sound out the window, branches shaking, loud, awful cries from inside the tree, high, like only a small animal can produce in a panic. Wailing painful wailing. Molly got her little eight-year-old body out of bed, grabbed her trusty flashlight that Dad used to check for monsters, and approached the mirror of a window painted on the outside with the black of night. At the window now, she pressed the torch against the glass, piercing through the darkness and landing in the branches. She searched. The sound wasn't stopping. It was louder now. Painful cries as the branches shook and scraped against the window, and then her light found the source. A nest. A nest filled with featherless baby birds, and above it, standing on hind legs with matted, blood-stained fur around the flat, buck-toothed fangs of its rat face, was a squirrel, holding the decapitated body of one of the babies. Maul! Molly jumped out of her skin, backing into the open bag of mania, which toppled and scattered beans all over the kitchen. What the fucking hell, Seth? Dude, you've been gone for like ten minutes. There's a line out the door. Flustered beyond belief, Molly tipped the bag of remaining beans upright and scanned the state of the floor. Clean it up later, Maul. They're not going anywhere, but your patrons might. Seth was right. Tonight was her chance to make bank. Mike only expected normal coffee rates in the register, and if Molly could manage to sell the rest of the bag tonight, she'd have enough to rent that cabin again and go excavating for a larger bag this time. She got to work. Sorry about the wait, Seth, she said placing two large cups on the counter and eyed the line of midnight soldiers looking for their pre-battle cup of courage. How many of you are here for Midnight Mania? Hands shot up. They all were. All right, we're a little short on supply tonight, so we'll do first come, first serve until I'm all out. Sound good? Molly did a quick head count, 15, and got to work, stepping on beans as she crossed to the open bag in the kitchen. 
Fifteen was a lot of pour-overs, but with tomorrow being an off day, she could stay late and clean if she used a bigger brewer. The grinder screamed in agony as she turned the beans to dust. Images of the bloody nest flashed like lightning in her mind, but she pushed on. Molly had souls to feed. That'll be twenty-two bucks. Forty-four bucks for the both. A hundred bucks for all five, and thanks for the tip. Molly pushed mud until there was nothing left, placing the last cup on the counter for a pair of young girls who appeared to be a little too young to be out so late. I'm sorry, girls. Y'all have to share. This is the last cup. We're sold out. She raised her voice to the room. Sold out! And then lowered back to the girls. But it's strong shit. You'll like it. And it's my treat tonight, okay, since I didn't have enough. The girls blushed and giggled, taking the cup and turning to find a seat in the sea of addicts dosing up. Molly stepped back into the kitchen with her wad of cash and began to count. $330, including tips. With the overtime Mike paid, this was a $400 night, which was becoming less and less rare. The warmth of the kitchen started to collect on Molly's neck. Something wasn't right. She glanced up from her winnings to scan the kitchen, but her eyes snapped immediately to the short black figure standing in the middle of the room, parachute pants wide, arms out to the side like a goth punk da Vinci sketch of a modern boy. Trev? He didn't move. Trev, buddy, you can't be in here. Staff only, dude. His head began to lower. If you're feeling over-caffeinated, I can give you a pitcher of water and maybe a croissant or something. Molly checked the rest of the room, scanning the floor to find all of the beans had been smashed. No, not smashed. Opened? Trev began to turn around, chin to chest. Molly could see through the greasy tendrils of his black hair that Trev looked unwell. Clogged snorting was coming from his nose and throat as his head twitched a little bit to the side. Seth, get in here! I think Trev is having a reaction! Molly called desperately. Trev's eyes shot open, staring at Molly through the top of his brow. He raised his head, and as his nose parted through his hair, Molly could see the tail of something slip up inside, making his eyes glaze for a second. My god, these weren't beans after all. They were. There was no time to think. Trev reached to his right and grabbed a serrated bread knife off the counter near a bag of croissants and inspected it as if seeing something like this for the very first time. The reflection seemed to mesmerize him for a moment. Trev then inspected his left hand and then his thumb before turning his eyes back to the bread knife. Molly watched frozen in fear as he married the two, sawing through the pad of his thumb straight to his bone. Blood pulsed from his chunky digit, speckling the floor as if Pollock had seen potential in the scattered bean shells. Trevor, baby! Maul, what did you do? Seth called from the doorway. Molly, still in shock, couldn't force a single muscle to move as she witnessed Seth walk to his bloody boyfriend. This is bad! You're losing a lot of blood, babe! Grab a towel! Please, Molly, for the love of Jesus, call 911! Molly wasn't religious. In fact, quite the opposite. So it wasn't the mention of God that drew her eyes upward, but instead a warm phosphorescence and a soft, curious whir, a deep cockroach orange pulsing and glowing and humming beautifully, heavenly, she thought. And maybe that was it. The irony of mentioning Christ amidst the angelic cacophony of the hatchlings that now covered the ceiling that drew her attention. Either way, 
The horror of the hundreds of winged glowworms climbing over each other with their long, hair-thin legs and maggoty, translucent bellies above spared Molly the knife's first few cuts. It was the hollow purr of the serrated blade on Seth's windpipe that drew her eyes back and snapped her from her trance. There were two reasons Molly knew she screamed. The first was because her throat hurt, and the second was the awakening of the swarm. Without any more dangerous hesitation, Molly pulled a simple dance move with her feet, landing the point of her right toe behind her left ankle and swiftly about-faced before attempting to tiptoe out the door into the cafe. In a way, she crept like a cartoon version of herself, which made her giggle internally for a moment as she reached to push the two-way door. The swarm behind her was making a noise like a combination of a chamber choir and an orchestra warming up before attempting a new piece of music, and the image of Seth's neck being played like a cello was enough to snap her back into a panic. Molly pushed through the door and gently closed it behind her with her back pressed against it, arms splayed out on each side. She stage-whispered, Bugs! So many bugs! The room was abuzz with the cocaine energy of Molly's midnight mania. Mookie Madhouse was running a craps game in the corner, the grand prize being the latest local grindhouse massacre movie. Luca, Megs, Trent, and Poe were LARPing amidst the chaos in a full-on sword fight. Kitchen knives versus a stack of chairs that must have been built into a troll or dragon for them to slay. And Val, headphones on, controller in hand, was screaming into the computer. You listen to me, you massive piece of 13-year-old living in your mama's basement troll-face shit pile. You keep camping out the respawns and I'll find your house and kill your motherfucking goldfish. The course of flying space bean maggots was coming to a crescendo in the kitchen. After seeing the blood kissing her sneakers from beneath the door, Molly's eyes darted around the room for a safe haven when she spotted a table turned on its side and made a controlled break for it, power walking heel to toe so as to move quickly without drawing too much attention. Back to the depths of hell, you primordial demon beast! Megs belted with vibrato while chest kicking the chair pile into oblivion. Your day has passed! Molly took two sprightly steps and collapsed into a disco night knee slide that delivered her safely into the table fort, where she found the two girls from earlier. They were smaller than she remembered when she told them to share the last coffee, and crying now. How old are you girls? Thirteen? Jesus! Molly's guilt hit like a bass piano key. It's not usually like this. Did you drink the coffee? The girls shook their head. Good. It's really not FDA approved anyway. Molly cracked a half grin. Just then, the door of the kitchen burst open, kicked wide by the bloody foot of Trev the Destroyer, cutter of throats, father of bean bugs. He raised his arms high, fingers tensed and stretched as the swarm exploded into the room. Amidst the brownish fog of wings and legs, behind the black curtains of his greasy hair, Molly could see his eyes glowing like a jack-o'-lantern, a deep, evil Halloween orange. Pull tight. This might suck, Molly told the girls as bugs shot up the unexpected noses of the LARPers. There was a moment of struggle, screams of pain, but soon the glow was behind their eyes and the adventure continued as they turned their knives on the rest of the patrons. What did I just tell you, you little- Val's next creative cursing was cut short by the knife Trent expertly threw into her chest. Placing a foot on her shoulder, Trent grabbed the handle. Turd! Val wheezed, looking Trent square in the glowing embers behind his eyes as he pushed with his foot to remove the blade. Val's chair tipped back, cracking her head against the floor as several fat glowworms climbed in and out of her nose. 
dissatisfied by the fading life of the potential host. Molly poked her head above the table to see Mookie's eyes come to life. He cracked open his DVDs and began throwing them like ninja stars. Molly lowered back into the fortress and addressed her new friends. Girls, we're gonna have to... Oh, hi, I'm Molly, by the way. I'm Madison, and this is Cindy. Cindy, Maddie, we're gonna have to make a break for it. What are those things? Well, they're not coffee beans, Molly thought. It's a massacre, and we gotta get out of here. Just then, accompanied by a bellowing war cry that could have come from any of the Midnight Warriors, a table went flying overhead, smashing out the plate glass window behind them. After a quick shower of glass fragments, Molly grabbed hands with Maddie and Cindy, and without hesitation, leapt over the sill into the crunchy sidewalk. You girls know your way home? Molly asked. The girls nodded as the DVD ninja star impaled itself into Cindy's neck. You girls know your way to the hospital? Molly asked without skipping a beat. Madison shook her head as Cindy fingered the plastic disc. Fuck. Okay, follow me. The girls made a break for it, running around the back of the building and hopping into the back seat of Molly's 1998 Toyota Corolla. Cindy, can your neck hold on a little bit? I gotta do something first. Molly called from the front as they sped back onto Main Street. She'll make it, Madison said firmly. Massive flames licked at the sky from the blown-out window of Mike's mud house, silhouetting the remaining warriors that fought in the inferno. In the split second of passing, Molly thought she caught the glimpse of Trev walking slowly and purposely through the carnage, eyes aglow, the ultimate goth moment. As they sped down Main Street towards the edge of town, Madison gazed out the back window, wondering how many of the glowing embers escaping into the night sky were those bugs heading off to infect the rest of the locals. They drove without talking, listening to the whimpering of a weakening Cindy. The car pinged and lit up the gas icon. Molly punched at the steering wheel as Maddie climbed into the front seat. Neither of them had noticed the blood starting to drain from Cindy's neck. Everyone was focused on something different. Where are we going? Madison asked in her smallest teen voice. Doesn't matter. This car's old as shit. We have about one mile left in her before she craps out. Should get us right to the edge of town. Molly knew her car well. The gas ran out, rolling them right past the final building to the open road that led to the woods of the old cabin. The woods that glowed orange that one stormy night. The car coughed and groaned as the trio drifted to a slow halt overlooking the rolling hills that led to the woods in the distance. Cindy leaned forward with the energy of a chemo patient and said softly, Maddie, I didn't tell you. I got the lead in the play. I'm Maria. Maddie didn't respond, and neither did Molly. They were both mesmerized by the glow like city lights coming from the tree line and covering the rolling grassy knoll, moving towards their car and their small town behind them like a stampede of orange Christmas lights. Cindy began to sing quietly in the back seat. The hills are alive with the sound of music. Molly giggled softly, looking ahead at her inevitable death, and began to hum along.
Hey friends, do you want to write scary stories like me, but you don't know where to start? Well, let me tell you about a course I took online called Nightmare Fuel, which is presented by Autocrit, our sponsor, guiding you through everything you need to know to develop and create amazing tales packed with fear and terror. Nightmare Fuel is an absolute horror writing survival guide with a healthy measure of self-study, workbooks, videos, and intensive live virtual classrooms. In addition to the impressive breadth of knowledge from the teachers, the course also features exclusive and meaningful guidance from Rain Hall, gothic horror author and creator of the Writer's Craft Guidebook series. Okay, so you've got your money's worth right there, but let me tell you about the parts where I really benefited, and that's the private member community and the editing software. The Autocrit software is like hiring a great therapist. It's there to guide you towards making good decisions in your writing, but you still do the work yourself and make your own decisions. The software can run hundreds of reports that help you critique your own writing, pacing, and repetition, and it has taken my writing to a whole new level. Now, now, I made friends during the class, talented, hard-working friends who love to write stories like I do, and we were able to connect, to chat, share our work, and get feedback from each other without sharing personal information through the private Autocrit network, which for me is like if I could take my favorite social media platform and remove everyone who's not interested in what I like. I can't tell you enough how valuable this class has been for me, and they don't just do horror, they have sci-fi and fantasy as well, so if you're looking to get started in writing or you just want to take that next step to get better, check out Haunting Season autocrit. Good evening, world, and welcome to Haunting Season. I'm joined again by Molly Oblivion of the Final Girl Friday podcast. Hey, Molly. Hey, thanks for having me back to back. This is great. <laughs> yeah. So I told you on your show and last week, when I really enjoy working with someone, I get this unexplainable urge to kill them in a story I'm writing. <laughs> and well, to put it simply, you're my first victim. Yay. What did you think of the story? First of all, absolutely love the Jeffrey Combs quote there. That's actually something that Jeffrey Combs said to me on the phone was that I was the perfect victim, in fact. So uh, <laughs> being murdered by you is one of the most entertaining things that has happened to me in a very long time. I absolutely loved this story. I loved how absolutely crazy it got and how weirdly similar to my own life it actually was. Like It wasn't just that, that the character's name was Molly, but I also work in a coffee shop and that coffee shop was managed by a guy named Mike for years. And what? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny to me because when we first talked on the phone, I knew you were at a coffee shop. So mm -hmm. I, I connected that, yeah. that you were working there. I had no other details about your life <laughs> at all yeah. other than listening to your show a handful of times. No, it's great. And also I give finger guns all the time. Yes. Like all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it's fantastic. You know, when we talked about Reanimator last week, you were talking about how the last like 30 minutes is like, you know, kind of blood pumping, just really exciting and kind of crazy. That's how I feel about this story. I feel like the story is very like similar to the spirit of Reanimator in that it starts, you know, kind of it's quirky and interesting and then it just gets crazy. And I love the way that I accepted my fate. It was just all in all really fun. It made me laugh out loud so many times. It was one of the most fun parts of writing someone I kind of knew or someone who I've had interactions with. Yeah. You know, just in my mind, I'm like, well, you seem pretty laid back. So maybe you'd also be laid back when your fate is <laughs> coming down on top of you. Well, I would certainly be singing and or dancing. <laughs> I'm going to go down doing one or both of those things. So yeah, I mean, it's appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> so, Molly, your show Final Girl Friday makes reference to the final girl, the woman who survives the slasher movie in the end. Mm -hmm. Can you tell listeners why the slasher genre is your favorite? 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I'll try not to talk forever. Um, yeah, no, I <laughs> I think the simplest way to say it is that for me, slasher films provide me with the thing I fear the most, which is human to human violence. That's the thing that I find most frightening, much more so than the supernatural, you know, um, although I do love a good supernatural story. Nothing scares me more than people. But also because of the, the, the formula of the slasher film, you're also guaranteed a laugh. Like in almost every slasher movie that's ever been made, you're guaranteed a laugh to kind of cut that tension. You usually have like a nice array of characters a, a good cluster of characters, which I, I also really like because as much as I'm scared of people, I also really love them. So it's just, they're really fun people stories. Usually a lot of potential for great practical effects. It's one of the few horror subgenres that really has kind of steadfastly held against the CG craze over all these years. You will encounter some slasher films that employ CG, but for the most part, makers of slasher movies do tend to stay practical, which I love. And then the tropes. You have quite a few tropes that are ever present within the slasher subgenre. You have the Chad. I'm a huge fan of Chad's. <laughs> I also really love creepy janitors or just, you know, the, the sort of creepy caretaker. And then the final girl, which to me is, I just think the greatest fictional archetype ever. <laughs> and it's one that I identify with. It's just very sort of emotionally precious to me as well as a, a lot of fun and gives a lot of really talented women great opportunities to act their asses off. So, I mean, I'm oh, sorry, <laughs> you know, like, but yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> no, I love it. it's, it's appropriately crass for the genre. <laughs> I originally set out to write this as a slasher, knowing that about you. But as it evolved into the story of the beans, I tried to let it go the direction it wanted to while still trying to keep elements of the slasher with Trev, the first infected boy. What did you think of the kitchen scene? Oh, God, I loved it. I loved it. It was so it was actually scary to me because I wasn't sure what was going on. And I loved some of the descriptions. I really liked the character of Molly, not to sound like a narcissist, but I really dug how she dealt with things. When you first realize that there's something wrong with Trev... I really like that she's just sort of like not freaking out right away, but just like kind of uncertain. And the description I just sort of could visualize in my head of her just sort of standing there kind of trying to figure it out. And I loved the uh, what was the line where it was like, my God, these weren't beans at all. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I really love that line. There were a couple of really fantastic lines. But yeah, that one I loved. <laughs> this was really fun for me to work humor and personality into a horror story. I feel like some of the ones I've recently been writing, I've been really into the graphic descriptions of just horrible things but I as a person am very jolly I sometimes lose that when writing a scary story because like oh I don't want to disappoint I don't want to stray too far but I think this was more my personality than anything to just have a quirky character who's kind of carefree while also crapping their pants <laughs> <laughs> yeah no I think you can really tell that you had a lot of fun writing it it really feels like you had a really good time writing this particular story but I also loved the the descriptions of the violence and everything about the horror of it but like when she was um listening to the sounds of the grinder and it was kind of giving her flashbacks from when she was a kid and just your description of that entire scene in general but like describing what was going on with the squirrels and like i don't know it was very visually disturbing in a very fun way which is exactly what i love about horror films so this was perfect for me personally <laughs> like from a very selfish standpoint this story is perfect well, that part of the story particularly has <laughs> deep meaning to me because I experienced that. I wasn't eight years old. I was maybe a year younger than I am now. And my wife and I woke up, I think it was early, early morning to the sound of like screaming outside the window. Courtney went to the window and she just started screaming, it's the babies, it's the babies. And I like that didn't, you know, help. And I ended up running outside with like this, I don't know where I got a rusty hammer, but I know that's what I had. Oh wow! And was like shaking it in the tree to try and get the squirrel out. We had no idea that squirrel 
squirrels eat baby birds. And we were just like Wikipediaing it and just becoming more and more horrified at oh, like man. the reality that we lived in that we had no idea existed around us. Yeah. <laughs> it was just so heartbreaking. <laughs> They're all so small. Just be nice to each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's disturbing. I'm really glad that that made it into that story because it's effective. Oh, what a horrible day. But that's the thing for me is like in horror stories and in movies, I'm never really scared by the ghost. I can kind of sympathize with the ghost. Oh, they just need help. They just want their story yeah. told. You know, <laughs> it's the humans that are so scary. And like mm-hmm. you said, with the slasher genre, why that resonates with you so much. I think that's what scares me in any horror movie is just people being mean or cruel to each other for no reason. Yeah, no, it's so true. But again, like I said, on the flip side of that, you also have people surviving that and you have people overcoming it. There's a lot of depth to the slasher subgenre. And I think, too, because it's a bit of an underdog in that vein, because of all the horror subgenres, I think the one that's taken the least seriously are slasher films. And so like that makes me want to fight even harder for it because I'm like, no, I think that actually has a lot more to say. So then how are you reacting to the critic reviews of Halloween Kills right now? Well, now that's a little different because I have a little, I have mixed feelings about Halloween Kills. I support people's enthusiasm for it and I support people's lack of enthusiasm for it, but it's a very emotional mm-hmm. thing. <laughs> <laughs> I can't look at Halloween Kills objectively, unfortunately. So, <laughs> Well, you know me, I've only seen the first Halloween, but I'm planning in October to watch two and three, and I'm probably most excited about three because of how many opinions there are about it. Oh, there are a lot of opinions about Halloween 3. It's true. I can't wait to have one. (laughs) I'd love to talk to you about it sometime because, I mean, I think it's a fantastic movie. My opinion is it's good and uh, it seems to be making a bit of a comeback right now. Like, it's got a resurgence in popularity, which is so exciting because we're going to start seeing Halloween 3 merch everywhere again. And I'm really excited because it's it's a great film for that. But yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to hearing what you think about it. (laughs) Really quickly, I did want to add one more thing. My favorite line in this entire story, and this might sound really silly, but like, it's my favorite moment. It was coffee because Molly said it was coffee. (laughs) (laughs) That's my favorite line in the whole story. When I read that, I cackled. So we talked about humans being the scariest part of horror movies for me, and I can get a little bit more specific than that. There is something that happens in certain movies where the person you love turns on you. Shaun of the Dead, it's Shaun's mom gets bitten and doesn't tell anyone, and then they've got to deal with the fact that she's about to turn into this zombie. But sometimes the creature takes control of the brain, and your loved one is coming after you with a knife, and you don't know what to do. So my big question for today is, how would you survive the horror slasher film where your most beloved human in life has turned on you and is coming at you with a weapon? Oh, I would die. (laughs) I would die so hard. It would be my mother. And in every scenario where she becomes evil, I either become evil with her. So like if she were a zombie, I would let her bite me, you know, so we could just be zombies together. She wouldn't have to go through it alone. If she were coming at me with a knife, I would have no, I would just, I would die. She's my best friend. She's my Achilles heel. Like, what have you seen 28 Days Later? Yeah. Okay, well, you remember what happens to Hannah's dad, you know, Brendan Gleeson's Mm -hmm. character. That haunted me for so long. I mean, it's a haunting situation in general, but the thing that really haunted me about it is I'm like, if... Jim and everyone else hadn't shown up when they did, what would have happened to Hannah? Because I feel like I would have been Hannah in that situation. I would never be able to hurt my mom. So, yep, Mm -hmm. I'd die. (laughs) I always feel really badly for characters and and I feel hard for them when they actually do have to kind of, you know, hurt someone that they love. Like when they're able to do it, I commend them for it because, you know, it's survival instincts and who knows. You know, like you, I'd probably die in the process anyway. Yeah, I would. I would die. I would. I mean, you know, have you ever seen Anna and the Apocalypse? Oh, that sounds familiar, but I guess not. Oh, man, it's great. 
great. I don't know if you're a fan of musicals, but it's a zombie musical and it's amazing. It's definitely, I would say, probably my favorite horror musical. But there, yeah, there are a couple of situations in and in the apocalypse where it, it, it hits me so hard in the heart because, again, it's very similar. Zombie stories, I think, are the best for that mm-hmm. because very rarely do we get a situation where, like, the person that we love, you know, just na- snaps and just decides to kill us. You know, like, um, What Keeps You Alive, I think, is a, a movie that I saw recently where that was sort of the plot. But for the most part, it's like zombies because it's not anybody nobody had anything any control over that and it, it creates some seriously heart-wrenching moments and Shaun of the Dead is also so great so yeah if you like Shaun of the Dead watch Anne and the Apocalypse oh, I'm gonna have to I was a musical theater major in college so oh there you go yeah <laughs> you'll love it then it's it's great I, I think w- with horror musicals they're really hit or miss because a lot of the time you know the music is just a delivery system for the story and you can tell that the musical exists solely for the novelty and in the Apocalypse is very different in that it really feels like it was a musical first and a horror story second so it's just like got really solid music really solid performances it, it's it's really fun and I, I highly recommend it all right so what about you listeners how would you survive if your loved one turned on you do you love them enough to die for them or would you kill them in order to survive but before that we've got an ad from our sponsor memento mori is the premier oddities and curiosities shop located in los angeles visit us at 1507 wilcox avenue at sunset boulevard in the heart of hollywood fridays through sundays 11 to 6 p.m or shop online at www.mementomori-la.com so here's what listeners of the show had to say to the same question of what would you do if your loved one turned on you and your life became a horror movie as your wife i'd kill you Immediately. Okay, Courtney. So not even a moment of hesitation. Just that's it. You're coming. You're done. It's pretty tough. I think I gotta go full pet cemetery and keep this undead version of my wife around. What else is that in? Walking Dead. Yeah, she's deformed and lusts for blood. Make sure their restraints aren't too terrible. You gotta try to rehabilitate them. Hopefully you have some sort of soundproof room so the moaning doesn't keep you up. The clanking of the chains. I mean, in a supernatural situation, you don't know if you can reverse the curse or not. You gotta do some research. I'm not going out there trying to stab and slice right away. Seek out some experts. You know, bare minimum, if you've capsulized and contained this thing, at least like local TV news might come to your place to meet lots of researchers. So what everyone should have in mind, just in case of this sort of situation, is a a jail cell-esque thing basement that they know of some sort of concrete surrounded room where there's two exits one where you can run in and the thing chases you the entrance locks behind it automatically and two where you can make your way out and lock that thing in there i posit and i hold that if something like this existed in the movie it follows the movie would have been over very quickly if we lived in a society where these sort of things were problems all the time you have to have these one of these rooms in every neighborhood <laughs> call them roach motels creatures check in but they don't check out damn josh that's a tough one my uncle's a big dude like he's a footballer well he was a professional bodybuilder and jujitsu master so that'd be hard but i have a close relationship with my uncle too so that would be so tough to deal with but in the end it's about survival right so gotta break out that shoddy thank you to everyone who contributed today listeners stay tuned at the end of the credits for how you can get more involved in haunting season haunting season was created by me joshua sterling bragg and is a joint production of believe limited and mac gillen special thanks to our sponsors autocrit and memento mori la and of course our very special guest molly oblivion of the final girl friday podcast you can find a link to molly's show below haunting season is executive produced by patrick james lynch and ryan and mac gillen molly's midnight massacre was written directed performed by joshua sterling bragg and edited by 
Colby Crow. Today's podcast was edited by Drama Del Rosario, featuring music made exclusively for the show by North Innsbruck. Creative support comes from Cody Dugan, Jessica Richmond, Mel Forrest, and my wife, Courtney Barber. If you like our show, please leave a review. You can find show updates on Instagram, daily movie reviews, and horror talk on TikTok. And you can join the conversation yourself by getting involved on HiHo, where I post weekly questions that you can respond to with video and audio that we will work into the one big question segment at the end of every episode. That's it for our show today. And remember, we're more likely to survive if we stick together. So I hope to see you next time.